0: Here with episode 13 of Ice Coffee. An unusual mix. Quick accounts of three colourful characters from the USA. One, a kind of anti Waddell. One who never ventured south but whose ideas of what might lie there held tremendous influence, both positive and negative, in shaping American governmental ambitions and subsequent lack of ambitions regarding Antarctica. And one who did a lot to spur American governmental interest in exploration but whose efforts were constantly stymied by others. Then, an interview with Sue Halliwell, whose first venture south coincided with one of my summers on Ross Island, though we never bumped into each other at the time, and whose subsequent experiences in the Arctic warrant a follow-up interview for some first-hand compare and contrast discussion. Which reminds me, I've got to catch her before she heads to Canada again for the northern summer. First cab off the rank is our Auntie Waddell, American sealer and suspected fantasist, Benjamin Morell, first approached Antarctica as chief mate on the sealer, Wasp, under Captain Robert Johnson. No, not that Robert Johnson. The Wasp sailed for the Shetland Islands in 1821. Morell was noted for surviving a near-drowning, for recovering to the Wasp when his small boat was blown beyond sight in a gale, and in playing a leading role in extricating the wasp from ice that came close to trapping her. On their return to New York, Morell was made captain of the wasp for his efforts by the ship's owner, James Byers, while Johnston went on to command the schooner, Henry. While Waddell was nearby, naming the area we now call the Waddell Sea after his king, Morell was sailing in search of sealing grounds and a continent to the south of Cook's Sandwich Islands. Morel claimed he made the first landing on Bovatoya, the most remote island in the world, discovered almost a century earlier by French explorer Jean-Baptiste Charles Beauvais de Lozier. And my apologies to any francophiles. The Wasp became the first American vessel to sail south of the Antarctic Circle and continued to explore until March 1823. The highest latitude Morel reached is recorded as 70 degrees, 14 minutes south. The wasp headed north a month after Waddell. Such was the pressure to find and exploit untouched seal stocks. Murrell claimed open waters lay ahead and that he likely could sail to the pole if only dwindling supplies of cooking oil didn't force his hand to turn the ship about. While Waddell, who was ridiculed as a charlatan for accurately reporting open water where people expected ice, Morell fallaciously claimed to find hundreds of nautical miles of coastland in the same landless waters. His claims, made in a ghost-written publication almost a decade after his return from Antarctic waters, waxed lyrical. The way was open before me, clear and unobstructed, the temperature of the air and the water mild, the weather pleasant and the wind fair. Under such tempting auspices it was with painful reluctance that I relinquished the idea. The vassals of some petty despot may one day place this precious jewel of discovery in the diadem of their royal master. Would to heaven it might be set among the stars of our national banner. You can almost hear the trousers. Morel's claims weren't taken entirely seriously, with Charles Enderby, one of the Enderby brothers whose sealing and whaling company played a prominent part in the exploration and exploitation of the area, comparing Morel to Baron Munkhausen an 18th century German nobleman whose self aggrandizing tall tales saw him lampooned in fiction and granted the dubious honour of linguistic longevity when his name was applied to a suite of psychological conditions characterised by lies and delusions. But they also weren't entirely discounted until 80 years later. New South Greenland, as Morel named his fictional coast, was demonstrated as absent by Wilhelm Filchner and other members of the Gauss's crew in 1912. More on this in an episode dedicated to Filchner, one of five expedition leaders let loose on the Antarctic in that red-letter year for exploration south of the Convergence. The Wasp spent a year roving the Pacific before returning to New York. Morel sailed on three subsequent voyages, once on a ship called Tata and twice on a schooner named Antarctic, which Morell claimed as a nod to his southern exploits. His ghost-written memoir... A narrative of four voyages covers these journeys and makes, I'm told, entertaining reading, but necessarily says nothing of his fifth voyage. Heavily in debt after his profitless fourth voyage, Morell sailed in the brigantine Margaret Oakley, which was last seen leaving Singapore in 1835. The Margaret Oakley wrecked off the coast of Madagascar, and Morell used a cargo picked up in Canton and bound for New York. ...to pay off his rescuers and some of his debts. From where his insurers couldn't extradite him. A foray to London allowed him to sell off the remaining stolen cargo... ...but his insurers had the funds confiscated. Seeking employment with Enderby brothers... ...his reputation preceded him and he was given short shrift. Morell made his way to Havana... ...and may have become involved in the slave trade... ...may have died in Mozambique... ...may have faked his death and lived in South America somewhere... Conflicting and confusing information provides precisely the indeterminate ending to Benjamin Morel's life that narrative demands. After impressive and uncontestable feats saw Morell promoted from chief mate to captain of the Wasp, it's a little sad that his legacy is that of a fantasist. Second American of note this episode, John Cleve Sims Jr., was not the first person to propose the Earth comprises a series of nested hollow spheres, but he was one of the most vocal advocates for the hypothesis in the 19th century, the scientific consensus at the end of the 18th century being that the idea was baloney. Finding a first source for the hollow Earth idea is difficult because many cultures have thrown up folklore and myths about underground civilizations and lands. Almost any place with a hole in the ground and some people living near it will eventually spawn a variation on the theme. The nested hollow earth hypothesis did garner one very influential advocate during the 17th century in Edmund Halley, the second astronomer royal at Greenwich Observatory. Halley employed the idea of nested hollow spheres, each with a shell about 500 miles thick, to account for magnetic anomalies we now think arise from liquid ferrous metals sloshing about the earth's core. In Halley's model, The Earth comprised three concentric spheres and a solid core with each body rotating in a direction opposite to those adjacent and separated from one another by a luminous atmosphere which vented out the hole at the pole giving rise to the aurora borealis. Halley later took the first and second ever dedicated scientific voyages aboard the paramour to map magnetic variation around the world. Eventually covering ground between 52 degrees both north and south he published the first ever charts of magnetic variation, an immensely useful tool for anyone keen to know where they are, and setting the scene for the projects that set James Clark Ross on the path to polar notoriety. Notoriety that will reach its zenith in a future episode of Ice Coffee dedicated to his exploits. In 1818, former army officer John Cleve Sims proposed a five-sphere Earth model, each sphere being about 800 miles thick, and featuring a one-and-a-half thousand mile aperture at each pole. A gradually increasing incline at the apertures would prevent anyone falling in the hole, and the centrifugal force of the Earth's rotation would hold them in place once fully inverted. With sunlight reflected up off each successive sphere, the interior would be well-lit and warm, providing perfect conditions for verdant plant growth, of so animals, and perhaps even civilizations where Halley proposed his concentric spheres idea to explain anomalous magnetic readings, Sims seems to have been inspired by spheromania, attributing concentric spheric properties to any celestial body with a hint of the sphere to it, the sun, other planets, and even meteors. Sims sent a copy of his hypothesis to heads of state and royalty as his publication, Circular No. 1. Supergreg, Many subsequent circulars followed, and Sims proposed an expedition trekked north from Siberia with reindeer-drawn sleds and a hundred men. The expedition never came about. Sims refined his hypothesis, reducing the sphere count from five to two, thereby garnering far more support for this far more credible idea. Five concentric spheres, I ask you. (laughs) Actually... With no empirical evidence regarding the nature of the polls, Sims was taken seriously in his time by far more people, including some scientists, than even people as credulous as anti-vaccine advocates might credit. One of them was Jeremiah Reynolds. The more I read about the history of exploration and seafaring, the more coincidences I come across. A trite truism but I mention it here because introducing Jeremiah Reynolds to the narrative offers an opportunity to note that he published Mocha Dick, an account of an albino sperm whale living in the Pacific Ocean and causing much fear among longboat whalers for his ferocious reprisals when attacked. When finally dispatched, after around a 100 attempts to kill him, his body gave up a 100 barrels of whale oil and spermaceti, some ambergris and 19 rusty harpoons. Between Reynolds' accounts of Mocha Dick and Thomas Nickerson and Owen Chase's accounts of the fate of the whale ship Essex, whose crew spent months in open boats and resorted to cannibalism after a sperm whale rammed and sank their ship, Herman Melville had little choice but to write Moby Dick. I swear that the opportunities for digression in this series are endless. To prevent further time-wasting, I'll only mention Edgar Allan Poe and leave it to listeners to follow up as they see fit. Anywho, Jeremiah Reynolds, newspaper editor, found Sims' hypothesis compelling and added his considerable prowess as a public speaker to Sims' East Coast lecture tour, kicking off in September 1825. People paid fifty cents to hear Sims' ideas expounded through Reynolds' rhetoric, and while not everyone was convinced of the soundness of the deductive argument for polar holes and concentric spheres, enough people with enough clout got enthusiastic about the idea. That politicians in Washington came under pressure to fund exploratory efforts to test Sims' claims. While Sims remained focused on his thwarted Arctic ambitions, Reynolds recognized that the Antarctic offered scope to test the Hollow Earth idea and potential opportunities to claim land in the name of the USA. Reynolds hoped this potential might spur greater public interest and thereby more funding from the government and investors. The polarising matter of the Arctic or the Antarctic saw the men part ways in 1826. Though Reynolds' publication of a booklet on the Hollow Earth in 1827 demonstrates his fervour for polar holes extended beyond his association with Sims. Sims died in 1829 and substantial debt, sticking to the theme identified in recent episodes that polar ambitions automatically confer a pauper's death. His tangential contribution to Antarctic exploration was celebrated in the satirical and unofficial McMurdo Station-based newspaper, The Sims Polar Intelligencer. I can't get my hands on a single issue of this outlaw publication, and would be grateful if any listener can help me untangle the history of the series. After parting from Sims, Reynolds lobbied Samuel Southard, the Secretary of the Navy, and an active member of the Columbian Institute for the Promotion of the Arts and Sciences, requesting support from an Antarctic expedition. Having heard and rejected Sims' ideas, Southard was still eager that the Navy should support an Antarctic expedition simply because of the scientific opportunities it offered. Southard took the proposal to a fellow member of the Columbian Institute, President John Quincy Adams, who found Reynolds' lectures to be Exhibitions of Genius and Science, and whose ambitions that the USA become a great naval power saw him support the proposed expedition. Reynolds never actively denounced Sim's Hollow Earth hypothesis, but he did drop all mention of it from his attempts to get an expedition underway, instead focusing on exploratory opportunities and potential sealing grounds that might lie in wait for anyone willing to sail further south than Waddell. While several previous expeditions had mentioned reaching the pole as a laudable potential achievement, and some explorers mentioned that they might sail to the Pole under favourable weather as an afterthought. Reynolds is one of the first people to put reaching the South Pole forward as a goal in its own right. A matter of prestige and glory for a young nation. Congress, holding the naval purse strings, didn't care about prestige or science for the sake of science, and wanted Reynolds to put a dollar value on increasing US knowledge of the region while the sealing industry had run its quarry and therefore itself to local extinction. The money already made on the hapless pinnipeds served as a basis for financial projections on the nominal colonies so many, including Reynolds, imagined lying just around the next iceberg, but which never actually came to light. He also played heavily on the depletion of Atlantic whale stocks, prompting American whalers to shift their focus further afield. He imagined the discovery of sea otters in southern waters and added a projection based on the lucrative fur trade for those in the northern hemisphere to the mix. Anything he could mention that might turn a dollar and therefore turn Congress in favour of an expedition got a mention, even if the only reason to think it might be found in the south was that it definitely occurred in the north. Sandalwood? Yes. Why not include sandalwood? Got to be plenty of sandalwood down there. And land similar in nature to Sweden... Reynolds also pointed out the synergy between the US Navy and US merchant ships, with the former protecting the latter, and the latter providing the former with trained sailors and navigators. Surely the Navy should engage in furthering the interests of merchantmen, as an act of informed self-interest. In May 1828, with a British Admiralty expedition heading south, and likely to extend British claims on Antarctic Territory, see episode 14, Congress agreed that the existing Navy budget should fund an expedition on a naval vessel to explore and chart coasts and discover islands likely to be of benefit to U.S. commerce in southern waters. With no special grant and large existing naval commitments, the expedition would have to be kept small. Edmund Fanning, sailor and sealing magnate last mentioned in Episode 10, and who advocated for government-funded exploration as early as 1812, Through his support behind Reynolds' initiative, now known as the first United States exploring expedition, the warship Peacock, commanded by Captain Thomas Jones, was fitted out for the voyage. Consultation with New England whalers saw Reynolds add a Southern Ocean survey for right whales to the list of potentially beneficial outcomes, but the tasks set for the Peacock were outstripping what a single ship could achieve. Southard had naval surveyors examine a 200-ton whaling vessel But Senator Robert Hayne, suspicious that the expedition was chasing shadows in the form of Sims Polar Holes, requested more information about the planned voyage. On learning that approaching the pole was listed among the expedition goals, and concerned that attempts to establish American colonies so far from home would place further financial stresses on an already thinly spread navy, purchase of the second vessel was blocked, and the expedition was retasked to only survey coasts and islands already in the path of current economic activities. But the election of Andrew Jackson to the Presidency saw even this modest naval contribution to exploration in Antarctica squashed. No government assistance would be forthcoming. Reynolds and Fanning regrouped under the name the South Sea Fur Company and Exploring Expedition. Nathaniel and Alexander Palmer and Benjamin Pendleton were put in charge of three ships, with the costs of the exploration to be recouped in sealskins from the colonies they would no doubt encounter. A good thing too, because the operation was so tight for funds that public entreaties for books, charts and instruments were made. Dedicated scientific staff, enlisted to give the expedition scientific credibility, received almost no equipment or consumables to do the business of collecting and cataloguing specimens. But even the modest ambitions the expedition left home with dwindled as the ships sailed south. Once in Antarctic waters, all efforts remained focused on killing the few seals to be found on the already known islands. Poor weather precluded any attempt to find safe passage in the wake of Weddell, but the poor weather also increased the urgency with which the crews sought seals, leaving little time or energy for collecting specimens, let alone exploring. The expedition's naturalist, James Aites, did make the significant first discovery of fossils in the South Shetlands, revealing that the land was once capable of supporting large plant life. With scurvy setting in among the crews, the expedition headed to Valparaiso. Pendleton proposed further sealing in the north and another venture south in the following austral summer, but the crew was sick of facing the southern ocean for fuck-all seal skins and refused. Forced to choose between going home immediately or trying to sail a ship with no crew, Pendleton sailed for New York. Reynolds was left behind in Valparaiso, and we'll pick up his story after we spend some time with the Brits. Palmer's ship was boarded by pirates on the way home. Pendleton informed Fanning that the seal industry as they'd known it was ended until such time as new grounds were discovered, and that that couldn't happen without government backing. The South Sea Fur Company and Exploring expedition ended ignominiously, and while it's not the last we've heard of Reynolds, it was a sorry end to formerly glorious plans, Elite motif in this series. While the findings he could publish were limited by the sealing zeal of the ship's crews and the paucity of his scientific supplies, James Eights went down in history as the first dedicated Antarctic naturalist. Besides his fossil finds, he correctly surmised that icebergs could carry rocks with them, a decade before Charles Darwin came to the same conclusion but otherwise the expedition yielded little information. My reading for most episodes ranges over my catalogue of biographies and expedition accounts, but in this instance, particular credit needs to go to David Day's Antarctica, a biography. There's little in my books about Jeremiah Reynolds and without Day's excellent work, Reynolds' first expedition would have gone largely unmentioned in the series. I'll get around to making a full bibliography on the show notes once we revive the other laptop. It fell in the dive hole while we were downloading data loggers. I think the hard drive will pull through. Before signing off, I'd like to thank Rebecca for her patronage. I set out to make the series as professionally as my time and equipment will allow, so having finally decided to try and make this project pay for its own hosting, I don't think I can promise any dramatic improvement in sound quality, but I will try to ensure a minimum length for episodes, with any short accounts collated or combined with an interview, so Rebecca never feels I'm taking the piss. Going with the Patreon approach sits well with me, because the patchy tempo of my output wouldn't fit well with regular micropayments. But even so, I'll examine what personal spurs I can employ in getting the content out on a more regular basis. Funding is a perpetual problem for the scientifically inclined. Factor in a jonesing for Antarctic Ventures and you've got a skint Greek tragedy in the making. So Rebecca, the first listener to take up the offer available at patreon.com forward slash ice underscore coffee, your contribution is much appreciated, and should you find yourself in the vicinity, the coffee's on me. Welcoming to Ice Coffee, my first special guest, Sue Halliwell, a friend I made working at Museum Victoria. I gave a presentation there one day about my experiences diving at Scott Base, and she asked some questions in the question time and revealed that she'd travelled to Antarctica too. And we sat down over a couple of morning teas and shared stories, and I'd like her to tell her story to our audience. So welcome to Ice Coffee, Sue.
1: Hi Matt, and hi everybody. Yeah, it was back in January 2006 that I went down to the Antarctic. I went with um, Aurora Expeditions run by Greg Mortimer and his wife. Um, that It was a small boat tour, 100 passengers on a Russian icebreaker called the Marina Svetova*, that was adapted from Arctic sailing to go down to the Antarctic. Uh, it had a... A rounded bottom, not the same shape that the the typical Southern Ocean ships have. So the stability of the ship wasn't quite there, which made the the tour quite interesting. Um, until we actually got down to the Antarctic itself. Um, yeah, it was my fiftieth birthday present, so so it was it was something special. And it was the only time that I've ever been out of Australia as well. It was my first you know international trip, and. Um, When I told people that I'd never been anywhere else except for Tasmania, they thought that uh, I'd picked a a really butte one to be my first overseas adventure.
0: That round bottom hull sounds terrifying to me. I've got a terribly weak stomach for seasickness. What was the Southern Ocean experience like?
1: We had five days of chasing calm waters between two high-pressure systems, so um, it was absolutely diabolical. Uh, we we left Bluff at the southern island uh, on the southern tip of the southern island of New Zealand and uh, visited some of the sub-Antarctic islands and didn't get to enjoy them like we anticipated because of the weather. Um, that little asterisk that's on the brochure that says we will land here weather permitting, we had to um, ask them to highlight it and put it in <laughs> capital letters so that you know, to avoid future <clears throat> disappointment of other other people going down to the Antarctic. Um, the three days that we were actually at sea, I think out of the 100 people, there was about 20 of us that didn't get seasick. And that that was astounding.
0: You don't get seasick I, yourself.
1: And I I never knew <sighs> that I had sea legs. I'm and, so jealous. <laughs> so, so, you know, at the age of 50, never being on water before, except a little bit of water skiing. Um, up on the Murray River, big deal, um, yeah, to go to the Southern Ocean and, and, and yeah, to uh, be sitting up in, the, um, up in the bridge, you know, feeling like the whole ship's mine because there's just nobody else, you know, within Kuwee. So um, three days, you know, I just felt like, um, um, yeah, this was my tour, my personal tour, you know, because the, the crew only saw a few of us over the, this six-level ship at any one time, um, and we are always pleased to see somebody who was actually up, upright, you know, and, and coming to meals every mealtime and afternoon tea and things like that. But it had a disastrous effect on, um, on the actual um, food production for, for, the, for the tour because with the, the pitching and yawing of the ship um, was taken, the crew were taken by surprise in the, in the hospitality area. Lost a lot of crockery and cutlery, and a lot of food was spoilt. So our our menu choices were quite narrowed. And uh, um, but they did do a fantastic job. You know, having said that, um, the refitting of the ship was put to its test. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the wardrobes that had been refitted, drawers and study desks and things, um, you know, didn't stand the tolerances of the ship being pushed around and um, the contents of the other things in the cabin you know, squishing against them. So some of the desks were broken, the drawers of the desks, the wardrobes were broken. Uh, so the Boris, the carpenter, the plumber, Boris, <laughs> was the general fix-it man. He, he had his job cut out for him just um, going around for the next couple of weeks, uh, fixing all of the the internal fixtures and fittings for the for the tourists.
0: Again, you've made me very pleased that the United States Air Force helped me avoid my Southern Ocean blooding. Oh, <laughs> it just sounds nightmarish. Yeah.
1: Well, I think this is the point um, that was really brought home to us that we really got the real experience. You know, you think as a tourist you, you're going to get the frills and and um, no, be shown all the good bits of of touring, but we were shown the raw. We had the great clothing, the great footwear. Um, we had the the foreknowledge of navigation and people to to lead us down to these places and to to be there for us in a medical capacity, in a hospitality capacity, and and knowledge capacity. But um, we felt. That we deserve to be there after crossing the Southern Ocean. You know, we felt we'd earned the right to come down to this absolute pristine environment and to to enjoy it to its full. Yeah.
0: Well, that harkens back to the way you introduced yourself to me in that question session after my presentation. You said, "I've only been to Antarctica as a tourist," and that that sort of broke my heart a little bit because I don't think that people that travel to Antarctica should ever consider that they're just anything. Um, unless everyone is just there. I was just there as a diver. Um, There's no one person with a better justification to go there than anyone else. It doesn't have um, ancestral heritage tied to it like everywhere else on the planet. And the scientists, I'm finding as I research the history more and more, are mostly there for political reasons. So I, I love that people travel to Antarctica as tourists and they come back changed. And I think that that probably does more for the conservation of the continent than any other single factor, that people are coming back as advocates for Antarctica. Hmm. And the risks of putting ships down there are no greater than the risks of putting science bases down there. And the scientists have done a lot of damage that the tourists would have to catch up before you started playing um, snakes and ladders with the equations of who's done more, more harm. I just, I love that you've been there and I love that you are passionate about the place. So you're not just a tourist and (laughs) and you didn't need to earn the right to go there. You, you went there.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think as tourists or as a tourist, um, and talking to the other tourists that were on board or the expeditioners, we, we eventually called ourselves and felt, yeah, we can be, you know, we can be called that now. Um, you read the hardships and you read about the work that they did um, in the in the Scott and the Shackleton expeditions and then in the Mawson expeditions um, and you feel that, you know, they did what they did with what they thought was the best equipment and best clothing and fairly well prepared, you know, they really went into it. The, there was always room for better equipment or more of, but... Um, you know, during the, the very first lot of Antarctic exploration, you had the First World War happening. And so the countries were divided on where they were putting their money and um, um, what the budgets, yeah, sort of deemed were necessary and not necessary. And uh, so to, to go down to the Antarctic and see the remains of, of those expeditions... That's why I feel like, you know, I only went as a tourist because these people went down there, they gave up, you know, communication with their families, um, friends, any, anything that they would have normally enjoyed in their home environment, you know, they had such a, an isolated um, or narrow um, field of what they could actually do and when they could actually do it because of the daylight, how much daylight there was, how much um, the weather conditions—you know, whether or not there's going to be a blizzard for three days or for three weeks—and so um, to go down and just to look at this, you know, you feel that really you should be down there doing something because you've you've come down there um, to this isolated place that that needs that leaves needs love and nurturing. And all we're doing is actually going down and looking and taking photos and going back home again and some people ticking off a bucket list and some people making it the beginning of a launch pad for other things to do that are Antarctic related or or world conservation related. Um, Yeah, so to pay to go down there to see these things and to to not actually participate and help, um, that's why... You know, we sort of still felt that we were we were just tourists on a on a look see sort of expedition. But um, yeah, it's in it's in all of our blood. You know, anybody who went down there cannot come back unchanged. You know, that it's it is something that you can't experience anywhere else. Even if you go to the Arctic, um, the Arctic is a different experience altogether. People live in there in the Arctic. Um, from time immemorial, um, whereas people have only been able to live in the Antarctic um, through through outside means, nobody is indigenous to that area. And
0: what time of year were you sailing? What, when did you have?
1: Yeah, I went January the 3rd of January. We left Bluff uh, and got back. I think it was the 27th of January. So it was it was our summer. So it was more or less 24 hours daylight. Which was which was great, but uh, I wish I had a bigger box of matchsticks because, uh, you know, to try and stay awake 24 hours a day, every day, day in, day out, so you wouldn't miss anything <clears> was really, really very hard.
0: I know that feeling. Yeah. And yeah. which part of the coast did you approach?
1: Uh, we went from Cape Adair.
0: We can edit, so if you want to go and find a map. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Cape Adair, Cape all the way down to Ross Island. Right. Yeah. So we, we, right through McMurdo Sound.
1: Yeah, right through McMurdo Sound. So only, so we didn't actually get down to Ross Island uh, because the ice was still fast, so far out. And um, we went to Cape Adair, um, to Coolman Island, Cape Hallett. Um, we helicoptered into the Tourmaline Plateau on the Antarctic, uh, Antarctic Mountain Range, Trans-Antarctic Mountain Range, sorry. And... Down to Ross Island, but the weather wasn't with us. So I think only three or four helicopter um, shuttles actually made it before um, the day's activities were, were terminated. Um, we were f- we then got permission to follow a resupply ship, an American tanker called the St Lawrence, and as long as we kept a kilometre distance between us but in doing so the ice ice just wasn't with us. As soon as they broke the ice it would just reform again and and, uh, our our little icebreaker just couldn't get through. So um, plan B, Mount Brown is down that way and um, the guys in helicoptering the. Um, expeditions backwards and forwards to Ross Island, um, to Scott Base there, um, saw Mount Brown and saw that there was an iceberg, sort of trapped in ice, but had like a moat around it um, and a fair bit of ice shelf, so they could land people um, and then you know circumnavigate this iceberg and um, come back on board the Marina Svetava as an afternoon sort of activity. And, uh, yeah, everybody put their hand up and said, yes, that'd be great, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, so we did that instead. We visited um, Mario Zuccelli, the Italian base, on the way back. Um, And after visiting Mario Zuccelli, oh, sorry, we went to Inexpressible Island first, and this was at uh, 10 o'clock at night until midnight, and we were being broad daylight we were being buzzed by this um, twin otter that was owned by Maria Zuccelli. And uh, they radioed through. If we'd like to visit their base the next morning, they would show us their water treatment plant and uh, treat us to some Italian coffee and stamp our passports and sell us stamps. So that was a win-win situation there. We um, all went to bed quite happy and um, yeah, visited Mario Zuccelli the next day. Then we went on to have an international rescue at sea. Yes. Um, a Patagonian tooth fishing, illegal tooth fishing vessel, the, the Paloma, um, one of their crew came to grief. He was hit in the head with some cargo and he had, he had an altered conscious state and they were really worried about him. Uh, so they put out the May Day. Was there any doctor's on board our vessel that would be able to come across to their vessel to to assess this this crew member. Um, so that was um, a big event. It went from probably 2 in the morning until about 3, 4 in the morning where some of, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell this, you might have to shoot me later, <laughs> but uh, the doctor, um, a person who could, one of the, one of the expeditioners was multilingual, and he went across to translate. Um, the Zodiac driver, who was one of the Aurora expedition staff as well, so two expedition, uh, Aurora expedition staff went across, one with a gun, you know, concealed to make sure that their safety wasn't going to be, be um, put at risk. Um, the Zodiac went over; they assessed the. Seam crewman and um brought him back across to uh marina Sveteva, where he was transferred to the helicopter because we had two helicopters on board um and he was hallied over to mario zicelli they um got him over to spot base by the twin otter and then he had a hercules take him back to south america so he was being looked after within 12 hours um and uh, we were still just puddling around in, you know, in the, back down, you know, in the Antarctic. Yeah.
0: As you pointed out earlier, that's a really far cry from what would have been possible even just 50 years ago. Mm, that's it. Just there yeah. wasn't the, the resources or the communications or the capacity to, to move people around to that extent. Yeah. If, if you got injured, if you got a critical injury, you died a critical death.
1: Mm, that's right. Yep. And, like, being in those zodiacs, um, people said, weren't you frightened? And I thought, well, what's there to be frightened of? You know, I'm, I was 50 years of age. I thought, I've had a fantastic life up to date. I'm doing this because I already had a little sort of a cancer scare. And I thought, if I'm still alive at 50, I'm going to do something for my 50th birthday. You know? So I thought, um, no, not really. And they said, but there's 10 kilometres of sea underneath you. If you're in the water you've got two minutes before you're dead. Um, You know, (laughs) they come up with all of these reasons that I really hadn't given too much thought to about my safety because I felt that if something did happen, that I was secure with the safety briefings that we had when we were first brought on board. Um, Yeah, it covered any sort of disaster that might happen. Um, The communication between the bases... And, you know, that, that structure um, but and cooperation between the bases down there, that uh, if an event did happen, the only thing that would, would hinder us would be weather. Uh, otherwise, everything else was down there, um, you know, to cater for any emergency. Yeah.
0: And what sort of wildlife experiences did you have on this trip? Mm,
1: yeah, amazing, yeah. The... The first introduction to the wildlife was um, at the Sub-Antarctic Islands, at Auckland Island. We um, we saw all of the different seals that we thought that we would see. So you have the Waddell seal, you have crab eaters, and you have... Um,
0: leopards. Leopards. And Antarctic fur seals.
1: The Antarctic fur seals, yep. Um, when we got down to Cape Adair, there was masses of Adélie penguins. You know, you just you just stand there, absolutely stunned by the 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 vast rookery. You know that um, these penguin colonies, um, you know, take over just up the hills. Where for as far as the eye could see, it was just sort of black and white, the noise and the pink pink of the guano. But because of the temperature, there's no smell, so <laughs> it, was, it was fine. And we were told not to um, approach the wildlife, but nobody told the wildlife not to approach us. So you stay still and, um, you know, you have the little little Adelia penguins coming up, very curious, you know, looking at your boots, looking at your backpack, um, yeah, just looking at you, you know, and then, then just going away and, and continuing on their day, you know, doing their odd little routines that they do, pinching each other's rocks to make the nests for their, you know, eggs that they're going to um, produce sooner or later, yeah. To, in the sea, we saw orca down at um, the Ross Ice Shelf. We got down to 7722. That was where we actually turned to come back home. You know, that was further south that we got. And, um it was a beautiful evening so we we're all out really really late and uh next thing this pod of orca came and so um yeah our cetacean cetaceous cetacean, experts yep yeah came up um and she olive gave olive andrews gave us a fantastic um overview of you know the matriarch of the pod you know being at the front and um Um, all of the juvenile males and females sort of following her and they did this 360 degree um, around the boat and then took off in front of the boat and did another one and um, then continued on so um, you know to see to see that that was just fantastic. I had some close encounters with uh, with some of the seals, and one in particular, a crab eater seal, when I was in a Zodiac. And so, you know, I've got some amazing photos uh, from that. Um, and the birds, you know, there's sixteen type of penguin. I think we saw six while we were down there because of being going to Macquarie Island. Um, you see the rockhoppers, the royal, the King penguin, we saw the Adelie, and that's five.
0: Chinstraps?
1: No, chin straps South America. Yeah. I'm probably missing out one there, but... And the birds. You know, the, there's something like 37 different birds that um, are, in, are indigenous to the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic region, so we saw a fair few of um, the different albatross, um, you know, the skewer, the petrels, all the different petrels. Um,
0: Were there bird spotters among the... Yes,
1: yes, there were, yeah. Oh, and see, this was the other thing. Uh, We were encouraged, all of the um, expeditioners were encouraged to um, note down in logs up on the bridge if we did see any of the, you know animals or birds that were in, in, in marine life that were indigenous to the area and what day um so you know we felt like we were actually helping a little bit there you know that was good fun
0: um i'm not a bird spotter myself and i don't take notes but i do try and pay attention to what species are around so that i can tell my friends who are bird spotters what i've seen and Sometimes that drives them a bit nuts because I've been to a couple of spots that are <laughs> difficult to get to, but I've, I've got tremendous affection for bird spotters. I, I don't like using the word twitcher, mm. though some of them use it themselves. It sounds a bit mean, but um, I just love the enthusiasm that they have and the, the excitement when they've seen even a bird that they've seen before, but they're making notes about what they've seen mm. at what time and it's, it's kind of infectious. I love them.
1: Mm. Well, I think one of the things that um, you know really brought peace to us each on the travelling down and travelling back up the five days of just being at sea was to sit out on the um, sit out on the on the back deck, back, deck five, um, with your headphones in and just watching the albatross. You know, just just wheeling, you know, backwards and forwards, catching the the drafts or whatever it is, you know, in amongst the the waves and uh, you just sort of thought, you know, this is just bliss you know, just being here, just seeing this and you know, being followed by wildlife, even way out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, it was just magnificent
0: Hmm. And you mentioned the helicopter operations were curtailed by weather one day, did you experience the the full Blizzard conditions that Antarctica can throw.
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly did, yeah. Um, I think because we we always sort of kept on the move. If um, can, if our landings uh, had to be called off, or they were successful, and we finished. We'd go back out to sea, of course, um, to to make the most of time to get back up the coast to to our next destination. So going out to sea, you you uh, would go. To better weather conditions, Um, but I think when we were um, down at Ross Island, you know, that was quite amazing. The I've got a photograph of the thermometer, you know, saying it's minus thirty-seven wind chill, and it was minus thirteen, minus yeah, minus thirteen on that particular day. But uh, when we got up to the Bellany Islands, um, I think because it was warmer. You know the 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 mist and the, and the smog, or fog, sorry, was much more prevalent, and uh, that that stayed with us for a good two days, and uh, so you could just get glimpses of the Bellany Islands, um, you know, in between in between little parting of the of the mists, <laughs> yeah.
0: I've not been to the ice edge. Um, I've always been well behind the sea ice so is it true that the conditions near the sea ice tend to be very calm is that your experience
1: yes yeah this is after experiencing the 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 wrath of this the southern ocean to then come across the convergence into the actual you know antarctic waters proper the water was just like glass you know it was it was just something that was just so unexpected because when we look out to sea all from the coast we see rolling waves coming in, you know, regularly and um, to see the coast down there being um, laced by ice and to have this mirror finish sea expanding out as far as the eye can see you know, is just something that um everybody should be able to experience Uh, you just you can't take enough photos to sort of get the get the feeling across i don't think no that's it's yeah it was just absolutely amazing just bliss
0: it's so um heartening to me to speak to you every time we chat i i love our conversations and wide-ranging topics but when you speak about your experiences in the Antarctic, there is an extra edge of passion and it just it just gets me. Um, I knew that this would happen, that the time would slip away and we won't have time to discuss your work in the Arctic. You've, you've worked a season in the Arctic and you're going back there mm-hmm. for another season in the north and that's a whole other story and I'd, I'd like to catch you before you go north again but I'd also like to speak to you at some point about your experiences um, chasing up Antarctic history through the various museums.